Big Swinging Stocks acknowledges the traditional custodians of Australia's lands, skies and waterways and pays respects to elders past, present and emerging. This podcast is brought to you by SelfWealth and operates under AFSL number 421789 as general advice only. Because we can't take into account your personal objectives or financial situation, you should seek independent professional financial advice before making any investment decision. For more information and our financial disclosure statement, check the show notes. What on earth is going on? So I'll give you an interesting statistic. Drone companies and jetpack companies in there. Things go a little bit pear-shaped. Iceberg lettuce at $10. There is never a perfect moment. It was a really good time to invest. Markets crashed. Billions of dollars wiped off the market. We're entering into a new era. You can't invest your way out of a savings mistake. The data is showing people are just stockpiling cash. We're doing the right thing for our financial future. That means there's optimism left. Okay, I'm going to keep investing when prices are falling, even though it's scary. That's my that's my spiel. That's my rant. This week, Bitcoin slumped 70% to a low of 20,000 USD. And while crypto is inherently volatile, it wasn't alone. The ASX 200 was down 11.5, the tech industrial Nasdaq was down 28%, and the S&P 500 was down 19.5%. Just six months ago, most of these indices, which aggregate major companies listed on the stock exchange globally, were hitting highs. I talked a few weeks ago about how, for the first time, investors in this particular moment in the market feel a little bit like joining a party which has already started to wind down. And for anyone who arrived recently, well, it can feel a bit shocking. So as a long-time listener, first-time caller, I had to bring in some experts who could actually make sense of the mess we're currently in. Owen and Kate from Rask, who have their very own uber-successful podcast all about investing, the Australian Finance Podcast. Welcome to the show, Owen and Kate. Hi. Thanks for having us, Alex. On this lovely Melbourne morning. Yay. Thanks for joining. Well, first question we ask all our guests and I'll ask you, Kate, and then you, Owen, what was your first investing memory? Well, my first memory was probably back when I was 18 and I wouldn't call it investing now, but at the time I was, I downloaded a brokerage account and was just buying and selling random companies that I saw that were going green and red on any given day. I remember looking at my statements and uh, there was a few drone companies and jetpack companies in there. So not what I call investing now, but it's certainly a good way to uh, learn how to press all the buttons on my brokerage app and certainly donate a lot in brokerage to my broker at the time. (laughs) That's so brave, Kate. I don't think I would have just been terrified, but I love the tech slant to your early investing dabbles. (laughs) Yeah, I was just looking for cool things, I think, at the time. (laughs) And things on the way up, which is, you know, (laughs) that's an interesting approach. What about you, Owen? Um, pardon me. My first investment was actually a company which we all know, which is National Australia Bank. And the reason that I bought National Australia Bank was very simple. I opened a brokerage account, um, just thinking that, hey, there's a lot of people that, um, own the economy. So they're like, I read a Tony Robbins book where he says, you got to own the economy. You can't just be working for the economy. And so I opened a brokerage account. And naturally, the first thing I did was type in Apple. The company didn't show up. I typed in Google. That didn't show up. I typed in Microsoft. Didn't sh- I kept on typing in all these US brands and none of them showed up. And I was like, well, why can't I invest in them? It's because the brokerage at the time didn't offer international trading. So I went with the next brand that I knew and I walked past the National Australia Bank uh, branch that day, typed it in, bought the shares, happy days. And it was on from there. And I just stuck with blue chips for a while. Then it went really speculative and things got messy. And do you actually have any of that? Do either of you actually own any of those stocks today? 
No, no definitely not. Are. I no. wiped the slate clean. <laughs> I've done that a few Long times too. Like I've like cleared the decks. It's really cool how young you two were when you first started investing. And I think, you know, for a lot of people probably wasn't the norm, but I think we're increasingly seeing the barriers to entry for investing lowering and young people starting to join. But it's also interesting for those young investors that they've lived through the last two decades of an increasingly low interest rate environment. And we've just seen that America has announced a cash rate increase, their largest since 1994. We've done the same, our largest since February 2000. So for a lot of young investors, this might feel really out of the norm, like it came out of nowhere. And I suppose my question to both of you, maybe you can start, Owen, is what on earth is going on? Well, um, that's a great question. I guess it's the question at the moment is a lot of uh, what we see in the economy right now is a reaction to probably two things. We've got the war in Ukraine and we've also got um, cycling out of COVID. And both of those have the impact of increasing the prices of goods around the world because uh, there's been a lot of, you may have seen on the news, China, for example, having issues with their ports and getting ships to and from. Uh, then, you know, shutdowns in, in major uh, manufacturing hubs and distribution hubs throughout the country. And then obviously over in the Ukraine, we've had a lot of issues with oil and gas because, um, you know, the Ukraine is a thoroughfare or a place where a lot of oil and gas is distributed throughout Europe. Um, and also other things like wheat uh, and other types of agricultural products actually come from the Ukraine or from Russia. So with sanctions and what have you going on, uh, it's no surprise that we've seen prices increase around the world because even though, say, for example, we've got our own wheat here in Australia, it only takes a certain percentage of the global wheat supply to fall off for it to affect all prices because that's the way economics work. Normally, we sit around equilibrium, but when we tip slightly to one side, things go a little bit pear-shaped. So, we're seeing that happen now and interest rates are going up and that's part of you know the normal course of business. If you look over a 100-year stretch, interest rates do go up. It just hurts when they do. So, we're experiencing that right now. <laughs> and it's it's sort of been coupled with everything else getting more expensive domestically. I mean, you mentioned a few industries, but it seems to have proliferated anywhere. I mean, we're seeing iceberg lettuce at $10 simply because of supply chain issues and also just the impacts of climate change on, you know, coal is wet and that's driving up the price of coal and therefore our electricity and gas prices. So it does feel like uh, the... It, we're entering into a new era. It very much feels like the train has stopped and we're at a different station. But as these sort of large economic factors are slowly changing, the environment, the investing environment that we're in is really different now. And a lot of people are starting to ring the bell of bear market and potentially also recession. My first question is, what does that actually mean and then we can talk a little bit about what investors should be doing in those different environments. So a bear market is pretty much just a period where the market experiences prolonged price declines, say around 20% from its highs. So this could be an overall market like the ASX 200 or the S&P 500 in the US, or it could be about a particular company. So suddenly investors might 
change their mind about a particular company's futures. And so suddenly, instead of being the bell of the ball and everyone loving investing in this company, everyone decides, nope, I want to go somewhere else. And so suddenly the price falls quite substantially. And it, a bear market's usually accompanied by a lot of pessimism, just generally with investors, a lot of news headlines that are fairly pessimistic. Um, I don't know if you've had a look at the the financial review or even just Googled ASX news recently, but you'll see headlines like markets crashed, billions of dollars wiped off the market. And so, yeah, so it can be really scary, especially for new investors who, well, the ASX did tell us a lot of new investors started in 2020 and 2021. And it was a fairly nice time to invest if you had a bit of spare money and you had a bit of time to learn about it and get started. And for a lot of people, it was their first entry into the market. And so um, things did seem a bit nicer and it was a good way to get started. But now a lot of those investors who started in 2020 and 2021 are experiencing some volatility for possibly the first time seeing these headlines. And when they weren't invested, the headlines didn't matter as much. But now because you've got the money in the market, suddenly these headlines feel really personal and it can become really scary. And I think the biggest thing we were talking about how to deal with market anxiety, or I was calling it the other day, and um, even just small things like not looking at your brokerage account every day because it does stress you out when you can't do anything about it in the short term. If you've picked your long-term investing goals and you're really happy with your plan or you were three months ago, then don't let all those headlines um, spook you because you've got your five to 10 year investing plan. You're happy with what you're doing. So it's very easy to get our minds changed by just looking at a few headlines. And I guess that's, it does help as Owen mentioned before, a little bit about what's going on. But at the end of the day, we just want to know that we're doing the right thing for our financial future. So looking back at the big picture, zooming out, even Vanguard have some great charts so you can see what the market's done over the last hundred years in different industries, which is really good. And even just taking a break, sometimes you just not need to not look at your brokerage account for a day, stop looking at the news for a day and go for a walk, which has been helpful for me. I love that tip. I also think for me, at least, I'm curious to hear what your sort of like number one, we're in a recession. Oh God, what do we do tip is Owen. But mine would be if I found it a lot more difficult to keep money invested when I didn't feel like I had enough of a buffer outside of my brokerage, when I had too much skin in the game and I had overcommitted and I didn't have enough savings or, you know, oh God, it's it's going down. What if I need the money? It's far easier to do that if you actually have a significant emergency fund and savings outside that are unaffected. Like, yes, inflation impacts your savings, but not as quickly as it does the volatility in the stock market. But what about you, Owen? What's your number yeah, one tip? Well, I would say the same, Alex. I would say that most people... Um, unfortunately, when they come to investing, they don't really think about their personal finance hygiene. It's a saying that you you can't invest your way out of a savings mistake. And the idea is that you have to be good with money before you start investing. And that's essential because they tip into one another. So if you're not a good saver, your poor money hygiene is going to affect the way you invest. You may be a great investor, but if you have to meet your, your rent, your mortgage, or you have emergency bills like that you need to pay, 
No amount of investing uh, is going to help you get out of that. You've got to have the cash there. You've got to be a, a good saver and have that um, front of mind. And so, like, how much cash? I guess it's a question. Probably six months is normally recommended for most people. Uh, if you're transitioning to retirement, you'll want more. Um, and if you have dependents or if you're a single bread, uh, like a single breadwinner in a household, uh, you might have like income protection and, and secure yourself otherwise. And the idea is that that just gives you the peace of mind. And it comes at the exact time when you need it most. And that is like right now, because having that money in that account is not necessarily, so we, we think about it like 2% interest, 3% interest, whatever, but it's not actually, that's not actually what it's for. It's actually for the ability to, to give you the ability to take advantage of lower prices. So yes, that cash is, seems like it's sitting there doing nothing, but it actually gives you the strength and the courage to be like, okay, I'm going to keep investing when prices are falling, even though it's scary. And I'm going to get better uh, returns because I'm investing at that time. And that's why I think the cash that you have sitting in the bank is not actually worthless. Like a lot of people would say, oh, it's worthless. You should be invested, blah, blah, blah. I actually think it's a, a, a good thing to do for the simple fact that you can actually use it. And uh, we've referenced a few stories in the Self-Wealth Lives that we do every Wednesday night. And in that uh, show, I've, I've explained that basically- Market timing doesn't work. So if you try and invest the bottom or invest the top or whatever, you try and predict that, it just really doesn't work. The best thing you can do is actually just invest regularly. And as long as you've got your, like I said, that cash sitting aside, you can have confidence right now that you can invest not having to touch that money for three or five years. I mean, that's super empowering. Um, you know, it's it's important to recognize, Alex, that the, the S&P 500 is really only down to where it was two years ago. And so, if you're investing for five or 10 or 20 years, the longer you invest, I think the better your results are going to be. And I think we'll look back at this time and be like, yes, that was painful. Yes, we didn't know what was happening. It could keep falling from here, whatever. But we kept buying great businesses or into ETFs, and it was a really good time to invest. So um, that's that's my personal belief anyway. I mean, none of us have a crystal ball, but like you said, we can control certain things, <laughs> fees, cash no, counts, all that stuff. Yeah, that's my that's my yeah. spiel. That's my rant well, to keep people investing. <laughs> no, I love that. No, no, we're all about, we're all about the passion here on <laughs> Big Stocks. Because I think there's a really interesting trend that we're actually seeing like on self-wealth with users. Uh, and clearly you're seeing it anecdotally as well, but the- the data is showing people are just stockpiling cash in their accounts. And what's interesting as well, which I didn't expect, actually, I really thought that people would be like buying and selling a lot or at least selling, is people are reducing the frequency and amount they're investing, which I think says that they're a little bit anxious. And I have to say, I'm the same. I mean, we're planning on buying a house this year, so we've reduced how much we're investing. But I started investing in super because it felt safer <laughs> and it's locked away for a long time. But I'm curious, you know, because a lot of people will say at the moment, buy the dip. And my counter to that is, well, what if the dip keeps dipping? So what are some alternative strategies to just that kind of throw cash at the market because the stock market is at a discount? Because that just seems mindless. Okay. Let's let's have you, yeah. Kate. <laughs> Wait, <are we> back? <laughs> no worries. No, I think... Um, buying the dip is a hard one because you never know what the next day is going to hold. And then you start waiting for this perfect moment to invest. And really the perfect moment is just to invest um, as often as possible. So I talk a lot about small bits lots of times because I'm not, I want to get on with my life. I don't want to wait for the perfect day, the perfect hour to 
to invest. I just will set a time um, every month to invest or whatever my particular strategy is at the time. I just make it regular. If I can automate parts of my investment plan, I do because then I take that stress, that mental decision. There's so many decisions we make in our lives anyway. So if we can take a couple of them off our plate, especially trying to pick something that I don't think any of us could actually pick the perfect time every time to buy the dip. So, I mean, when we interviewed um, Nick Majuli, who's quite um, a prolific writer in the personal finance and investing world in the US, he actually published a book called Just Keep Buying. And I think that is a great ethos, especially for investors that are looking at ETFs and building that core portfolio that they're hoping to hold for five, 10 plus years. You don't need to find that perfect time. You can just keep buying and just have a That's why we talk about writing down why you're buying, how often you want to buy it, what your own rules of investing are. So you've got a little bit of discipline and you've got something put aside. So when times get stressful and you see these really scary headlines, you can go back to your plan you've written down and go, this is what I'm going to do. This is what I'm going to, this is how I'm going to handle this period of time. Because otherwise you just keep waiting for a perfect moment and there, there is never a perfect moment. And then you end up because of that indecision, you do end up accumulating maybe a pile of cash that you just never can pull the trigger on. Um, and then you end up not investing for years and that ends up probably having worse impact on your overall financial future. Yeah. I think a lot of people that try and time the market think that uh, at the the peak of the market, they think, oh, I'm going to wait for it to drop and then it doesn't drop. And then they go on the way down, I'm going to wait for it to keep dropping. And then it keeps dropping and they think, okay, I'm going to wait for it to drop again until it gets to the low and then I'm going to invest. And we constantly have these mental barriers that we put in front of ourselves. At the end of the day though, like a lot of people that think they're high growth investors or they think that they are you know, able to time the market, they end up completely out of the market for forever because they miss it. And so I'll give you an interesting statistic that the stock market um, tends to return in a shortest period of time the most just before the biggest crash. So if you missed the like the, the 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 last run, if you like, before it starts to fall, there's a chance that you may actually miss out on a lot of the gains that come from investing in the market just to avoid a, a decline that maybe isn't as bad. And so we saw that, you know, the last two years, the stock market's just rallied straight up. Imagine if you thought two years ago, I'm just going to wait for it to fall. Um, you would still be waiting here two years later and you'd probably be more scared now than you were then. So um, that's where a lot of people psychologically just, you know, they kind of, I guess, talk themselves out of the market time and time again. And I see that all the time. I see that's that's more common than the person that just puts their head down, transfers $1,000 into their brokerage account every month and makes an investment, you know. And I, I, know, I know which one I'd rather yeah, be. Same. But that person requires a significant amount of discipline. I think the other thing that is like there's an interesting trend amongst retail investors like us is this obsession or this this intention of beating the alpha. And maybe this is like a hot copper ASX bets predominant mantra, but I want to talk about a little bit about the alpha and why it's important generally to all investors. Let's start with a bit of an explainer, Owen, on what is what is the alpha? Why is that? What does that mean in investing? Yeah, sure. So when we talk about um, alpha, what we're talking about, it's like that Greek symbol. There's a whole heap of Greek symbols in finance and investing, but this is the most common one. And what it means is effectively, <clears throat> you've got the stock market. What does the stock market return? You're doing better than that. So if the stock market returned 10% and you get 12%, 
that means there's 2% of alpha, that difference there. And um, that could, you could measure that almost against any market. But what's typical is in Australia, we measure that against the ASX 200, the S&P 500 in the US or the FTSE in the UK. Um, and these are just stock market indices. And we just say, we're trying to do better than average. But what's interesting about this, Alex, is when we measure averages, like at school, if we got a classroom of kids and we measured the school, the average of the kids in the class. We know for sure that there's going to be some tall kids, there's going to be some short kids, and the average is going to be in the middle somewhere. In the stock market, the average that we measure is actually not average at all. And what I mean by that is the stock market's return, so the ASX 200, S&P 500, Dow Jones, etc., is actually extremely good. And this is important because when we look at the studies – I think you were alluding to this in your question. When we look at the studies, a lot of professionals underperform the average. So, you, you know, there might be as many as 70% of professional investors do worse than the average. So, you're like, well, that possibly can't be the average. But you've got to think about it a bit differently. And that's why in the investing, the average is beautiful. And out chasing alpha or chasing that out, out performance is actually um, can be quite difficult and it can actually be detrimental because you can end up taking more risk. So sometimes the easiest thing to do yeah. is not to chase it at all. I think that's sage advice. I think we we can get quite obsessed with outperforming the market. If you haven't heard the term alpha, you might feel that oh, I need to outperform the ASX 200. I just think that's a bit absurd because I can understand the sentiment of wanting your money to do really, really well. But you're essentially saying, I want to do better than 30% of professionals who have an entire financial analyst team sitting in the back office doing this on a quarter by quarter basis. The other problem with that, I think, is that your best returns come from longevity in the market. Most people make most of their money from the most time in the market. So if you are making changes, trying to beat the alpha on a quarter by quarter basis, you're most likely buying and selling. And that is quite likely, again, law of averages, the data suggests that you're actually not going to be outperforming the market and your capital losses and gains are probably going to be eaten up by tax and fees. And it may actually just, it may feel like a really good way to dispel that anxiety of feeling like your money's going down, but it's probably not doing a lot. Another trend that feels less like a trend. It feels like just a perpetual theme that we'd like to talk about on big swinging stocks is ESG and all the letters in ESG. But there is a report that came out that said we need to be investing $1.5 trillion a year to meet our carbon targets by 2030 and 2050 globally. And I'm just curious for your thoughts on where do we think this money is going to come from? And do we think it's possible to invest our way out of climate change? I'll, di- I'll dive in. So it's an interesting, I guess, structural theme that we're seeing, Alex, because um, ESG stands for Environmental, Social and Governance. They're basically like three pillars of investing um, responsibly. So you can invest in you know, companies that contribute to lowering uh, climate impacts. So maybe you invest in renewable energy companies or companies that just are more environmentally friendly than 
the alternative companies, um, socially responsible. So these are companies that don't take advantage of uh, people or places or anything like that. Uh, governance is really just about having you know strong independent boards, uh, quality across the boards, like pay uh, equal pay or the opportunity to advance in your career based on merit. And so the the way that we invest in these things is pretty interesting so at the moment the way that we invest in ESG focused strategies is typically through a fund manager like an ETF or an actively managed fund um, or even our super funds we can select socially aware or ethically aware whatever you want to call it as individual investors however as in individual investors in stocks or businesses we actually have the greatest amount of control and we can do that and we can invest, say, in a company that is undertaking, I don't know, some sort of like uh, plan to move away from fossil fuels or has a net zero target. So for carbon emissions. And to your point about how much we need to invest, Alex, there are frequently reports like this. Um, I, the last numbers that I pulled, and this is going back a little while, I think it was over $24 billion a month is being contributed just to ESG funds alone. And there was well over a trillion dollars already invested. So um, for us to meet $1.5 trillion globally, I mean, that's a huge mountain to climb. But I think the way the world is going is that we're going to have more and more momentum towards something like that. And how do we, how can you tell? Well, if you just look at the heaviest fossil fuel emitting companies, you can see that their valuations are extremely low. And by that mean, that might have like a really low PE ratio, right? Versus say a company that is really on the front foot with climate change. They'll have a really high PE ratio. And what that tells you is that there's not as many investors wanting the fossil fuel heavy company. More people want to invest in a way that they believe is uh, environmentally responsible. So, and just one final thing I'll tack on the end here, which is that uh, the impact of actually doing something, you know, air quotes, responsible with your money. So investing in um, renewable energy or even in things that are better alternatives is profound. So if you, there have been numerous studies done by like Aware Super, Australian Ethical, uh, Beta Shares here in Australia. There have been plenty of academic papers published on this topic that suggest that investing in a way that has a high impact on the environment can be the equivalent of like two return flights or two flights to New York in terms of carbon emissions per $38,000 invested. So if you invested $38,000 into a ethically aware index fund, it's almost as good as not taking a flight in terms of its carbon emissions on the environment. So more people are waking up to that, which is great. Um, there is a lot of greenwashing going on, but for the most part, it's a really important thematic and we're seeing it um, play out globally, which is awesome. I really appreciate that answer, Owen, because I think there has to be a bit of a counterpoint to all the negative headlines about how we're not going to make it and it's all doom and gloom. And I love that at least in the finance space, the very fact that there is so much money being poured into ethical ETFs or even just companies that are pro professing or committing to quite aggressive carbon targets that means there's optimism left because you wouldn't be putting your money into these companies or these ETFs if you didn't believe that you could actually genuinely meet those targets and therefore make a better future. And I love that. It gives me hope. But that also brings us to, so we talked a lot about, I mean, we always, when we're talking about investing, we, there's a lot of focus on equities. So stocks as in like individual companies and then ETFs. But I want to talk a little bit about other investments, especially at a time like this when, you know, 
sort of traditionally growth investors in like tech companies, et cetera, experiencing a bit of a repricing and uh, what we might call Warren Buffett value investors who kind of invest in perennial companies that are always making income like insurance and that sort of thing are sort of having their time to shine at the moment. But let's talk about everything outside of that bubble. So Kate, to you, what else could invest, like what else is out there for people wanting to invest? Yeah. Well, there's lots of different options when you're building your portfolio. I guess the one we all know about in Australia is property. Um, and that's something I've had a bit of experience with lately, uh, going through the, uh, the old great Australian dream. Um, it's a very different process to <gasps> investing in Congratulations. shares. Yes. Yeah. Mm. It's, um, it's yeah, completely different. I thought it, there would be more similarities and it seems more different than it is the same, but um, a very different <laughs> emotional process for me. But yeah, you can invest in property and you can do that through the typical way of buying an apartment or buying a flat or buying a, a property, or you could invest in storage space, or you can invest in factories, or you could use real estate investment trusts, which you can buy through your broker to invest in property that way. Um, you can also invest in fund managers who manage property. So, there's heaps of different ways you can get exposure to property. Um, you could also invest in cash per se. You could invest, you could put your money in a term deposit. Uh, you could put your money in bonds. Um, you could put your money in crypto. You could put your money in a Banksy artwork. So, there's lots of different options. Whereas, I think it's just working out what works for you. You can definitely have more speculative investments. So, if you're using a, a core portfolio, which is maybe your long-term shares and ETFs that you're having for 5, 10 plus years, and then you might have your satellite, maybe 10% of your portfolio around the outside are things that are a little bit more speculative, or maybe you've got a few thematic ETFs in there, or maybe you've got a few things that you're not quite sure if they're investments, but you want to have a go. So, it doesn't have to be all boring, straightforward investing. And I think a lot of us are like, oh, it's either active or it's passive, like fun or boring. Whereas you can definitely do both. And I I think I even recommend that because sometimes we think, yeah, it has to be one or the other. But if you actually get in your head, you can do both, then you don't get completely sucked in the direction of either way um, and maybe do something you don't want to do. So, um, you can have fun with investing, you can explore, you can dabble, you can try new things, but just make sure that core of your portfolio is something that you're happy with for the long term. And oh, we haven't even mentioned super, which has a bit of all of those things in it. If you look at some of the large super funds, you find all sorts of strange things. They've invested in private equity. Some of the big super funds are in office buildings in London. Like it's it's crazy what they're invested in. So I think that's quite if you want to learn about all the possible things one could invest in. Sometimes they're only for wholesale, like large industry investors, but have a look at your uh, your super funds if you're with one of the large Australian super funds and just have a look at like the 10-page list of what they're invested in. It's quite uh, eye-opening. And I, I think the other aspect of, you know, it can be core and satellite, but perhaps for people, it's helpful to understand that they all sit at quite different places on uh, like a risk profile. And the length of time that you're recommended to be invested into these different things is different. Like a term deposit obviously has a term, so it'll actually you'll be invested for a particular amount of time, and that's generally the recommended time frame. Because if you get your money out early, there's sometimes fees to pay, or you don't you lose the interest that was accumulating. Um, whereas with like uh, real estate investment trusts, it's I think at least five years, I believe, for most of them. But again the PDS will set out what the recommended investing time frame is. We're going to wrap with a rapid fire round 
of true or false questions. And that's all you get. True or false. We can chat about them a little bit at the end if you really feel tired to making some commentary if I've pushed you into a corner to make a decision. Uh, and these are various quotes I found on the internet, uh, sources undisclosed because I don't want anyone going and finding these and looking for the rationale because there wasn't much. So <laughs> this is simply going to be for fun. Uh, and I'm going to start with you, Owen. Gold and Bitcoin are excellent long-term holds and stores of value in inflationary periods. <laughs> False. <laughs> Come on, Rowan. Do I, can I only answer with one word? Or <laughs> yes. yes. Okay. No, actually, why, okay. why? Why is it? Why is it false? I'd say gold. Gold has a proven record in inflationary environments, but Bitcoin definitely doesn't. You can just look at the price action recently. And you can see that that's gone straight down at a time when it was supposed to be a store of value. So, false. It was a hypothesis that has since been proven wrong. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, yep. Kate, dollar cost averaging is always better than lump sum investing. Uh, psychologically true for me. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love it. Okay. <laughs> I can't just do true or false. I feel like I'm too boxed in. <laughs> That's <laughs> uh, so how you know you're speaking to a bunch of commentators because they're like, what? One word? No. <laughs> no. <laughs> uh, Owen, Ethereum and Bitcoin have inherent value. This is tough. This is very tough. Um, I'm going to say false with an asterisk because it's finance. I can do an asterisk. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, Kate, the best first investment is the one you understand. I'd say true with an asterisk as well. <laughs> oh, God, it's almost like you do with the same person. I think the first. All right, I'll give you an opportunity. <laughs> explain, explain yourself. I think the the best first investment is the one you actually make. Sometimes we look for the one we hundred percent understand or the hundred percent we think is correct, and then we wait for years trying to find that elusive answer. But I think the mo most important one is actually just making that first investment. It doesn't have to be big; it can be five dollars, but just making it. Yeah, I would agree with that. I would have said, yeah, true, risk <laughs> as well. Uh, Owen, investing in ETFs only is risky. Stuff one, I would say false. Um, I mean, it, it is risky but not necessarily like catastrophic thanks to if you diversify across ETFs and you know if you have some ETFs with different providers across different markets you can get diversification um, but if you had it all in say one ETF provider or all with one type of ETF of course that's going to be risky so um, yeah there's actually something just quickly there's something that goes on behind the scenes called market making which is how the ETF runs and um, that's the that's the risky part for ETFs in a market crash, but it's really not as bad as what people might have you believe. And all right, final question, Kate, topical one. In recessions, active investments perform better. I wasn't too sure about this one because I haven't done much research, but I'm inclined to say false. So I'm not Ooh, sure. I, please, please explain. <laughs> I th yeah, please explain. Well, active uh, investments generally don't perform better Overall, I haven't seen about what happens in a recession, but considering it's every human psychology first the market and um, even the, the best professionals still fall prey to many of the psychological biases that we fall prey to during investing in general and in recessions, I think they're, they're in for just as much of a challenge as us. Maybe they've had a bit more experience and um, 
have a bit more tools at their disposal, but I still think it's uh, challenging. So, yeah, I'll, I'll be interested to see how that one plays out. Mm. I think that's a really fair well hypothesis, actually. Yes, it's yeah. my my unscientific hypothesis. <laughs> no, but I mean, it has a lot of it has a lot of merit, and it has data to back it up as well. Why would anything be different in a recession? Um, my final question to both of you is: Is this the best podcast that you've ever been on? And there's only one answer. It's true. They're like being held hostage. Um, it's been such a pleasure to have you both on Big Swinging Stocks today. Both of you are lovely and I mean, we'll, we'll, I'll poach you to come back on soon because this was so much fun. So thank you, Owen. Thank you, Kate. Uh, and we hope you had a great time at Big Swinging Stocks because I certainly did. <laughs> No worries. Thanks, Great to really, chat, Alex. Really appreciate it. It's great fun. Mm-hmm.